Amen. Well, tonight is, uh, as we said this morning, our last Sunday evening service, so we have a time of Q&A. We take questions uh, from the congregation, from the floor. You are welcome to ask them uh, as we move along, uh, as the Lord brings them to mind, or perhaps you came with questions. I have a couple of people that submitted questions to me ahead of time. Uh, Personally, by text, you can tweet your questions. No, not actually. I don't have any electronics with me up here, so that would be futile. But uh, you are welcome, uh, in, as, we, as I said, we move along to ask questions, perhaps things that are rising out of your own uh, personal life, your own studies in the Word of God, your own times with the Lord, maybe questions that have arisen out of uh, sermons uh, that we've been uh, enjoying over the last uh, couple weeks. But whatever it is, we'll do our best to address it from Scripture Certainly, we have our limitations, uh, and uh, still myself growing in uh, the grace and knowledge of the Lord, but by His uh, power and His Spirit, we'll do our best to answer those. I want to begin tonight by, uh, with a, one question that was asked to me, uh, even this evening as I came in. Uh, someone was asking for help in understanding the, uh, the, the responsibility that we have, or you might say how our responsibility in prayer works together with the sovereignty of God. And when we go and ask for all sorts of things for our loved ones, how does that work together with what is God's decreed will? And, you know, the fact that He is reigning and He has a purpose, He's numbered our days, all those things the Scripture tells us. How does that mesh together with prayers Specifically, this lady was asking prayers such as for safety and for blessing in our family and just this, the simple uh, prayers that we ask on a daily basis. I think the place uh, really to begin is in Daniel chapter 9, which in my mind is the place that most demonstrates a godly response to the sovereignty of God in prayer, Daniel 9 is the story of Daniel reading from the book of Jeremiah. And it says, in the first year of the reign of, of, of Darius the Mede, Daniel 9.2 says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So here's Daniel reading from the book of Jeremiah particularly Jeremiah 25, when it was very clearly laid out exactly what the Lord's will was, what His sovereignty was going to accomplish, He had decreed 70 years of captivity, dating from around 586 B.C. all the way to 516 B.C., 70 years of captivity, really uh, bookend, if you will, by the destruction of the temple, ultimately by Nebuchadnezzar in 586, until the rebuilding of the temple, which was completed in 516. That's the 70 years of captivity. Daniel realizes that. He knows that he hasn't quite reached that in the end of that era, 516, but he knows it's fast approaching. Within a couple of years, they will have reached it. He understands that the Lord's going to carry out His purposes. He understands that the Lord is going to restore the captivity of Israel. He's going to bring them back to their promised land, that He's going to fulfill His word. And at that point, 
if you have that kind of guarantee, that kind of promise, you would assume that, uh, you know, someone would just sort of throw up their hands like, oh, this is great. Let's just go on and sit back for the ride. Let's just sort of uh, coast along in the sovereignty of God. Or maybe, at the very least, they might begin to pray, you know, Lord, when they go back to Jerusalem or when we get back to the promised land, would you, you know, would you give me this? Would you give me that? You know, all of these things that typically dominate our prayers. But that's not at all what Daniel prays. When he realizes what the will of the Lord is and exactly what his decree is, he says in verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrongly and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far off, and all the lands which you've driven them because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against Him. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Without going through the entirety of the prayer, going all the way down through verse 19, you can see as He ends this, actually verse 18, this long prayer, which is basically a prayer of confession of the sin of Israel. He gets to his petition. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we now do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So basically, Daniel is praying that the Lord would fulfill his word. It's not an indication that Daniel in any way doubts the word of God. It's not as, as though he has questions about its, even its interpretation Daniel understands clearly exactly what the Lord's decreed and he turns around and he prays specifically that exactly what he read in Scripture will come to pass. You say, well, that's kind of useless. What's the point of that kind of prayer? Well, this is the prayer of a deeply godly and righteous man, a man who understood the Lord and His mercy, the man who understood the power of God, had experienced it in magnanimous ways in his own life, being delivered from the lion's den, being delivered from the hand of evil men over and over again. This is a man who understood that God always works in accordance with His will and His word. And he had no problem then linking up his prayer life with what he clearly understood to be God's will. 
This is exactly what we're commanded to do, right? First Timothy, excuse me, first uh, John chapter five tells us that we are to pray in this way. If we that we are to ask, it says, according to the will of God. And if we ask in this way, it says this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Quite simply, Daniel contented himself to pray within the boundaries of what he knew God's will to be. To pray within the boundaries of what he knew God's will to be. He prayed specifically what he saw in the word of God. It's very instructive to us who so often cast our prayers out on temporal blessings without ever taking time to really muse and contemplate on what exactly might be the Lord's will. I think it's instructive as you look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul that in spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the hardship that he encounters, he doesn't often pray for people to have physical safety. He doesn't often pray for people to have physical health. You'll be hard-pressed to find anywhere in all the prayers that Paul recorded him ever praying for many of the mundane things that, that really take up our prayer life. As a matter of fact, in the midst of persecution and prayer, uh, excuse me, persecution and suffering, what you often find is that Paul is praying for people's godly response in the face of that persecution. For example, in 2 Thessalonians, you see one of these prayers from the Apostle Paul. He says to the Thessalonians who are suffering persecution, intense persecution. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing would strike a lot of people as a heartless prayer in the face of persecution and people might be losing their lives you would think that Paul would be pleading for them to be delivered well it may be very well that Paul doesn't even know if that's the Lord's will for them to be delivered he doesn't know if it's the Lord's will for them to be healed of this disease delivered from this trouble and so he focuses his prayer on the things that he knows are God's will that in the midst of persecution that their faith be abounding and increasing, that their love for one another be growing all the time. He says down in verse 3, I mean, see chapter 3, however. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith but the lord is faithful he will establish you and guard you against the evil one i just throw that in there as an example as a as an indication that it's not always wrong to pray for deliverance from evil circumstances the lord himself taught us to pray that way right that uh, that, that we would be delivered from the evil one it's not always wrong that we be prayed but i think you can see very clearly in this chapter what paul's focus was in being delivered from these evil people, it wasn't so that he could 
personally escape suffering and he could go on in a life of ease, his particular focus was that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored and not be hindered in any way by the work of these evil men. One more passage in Colossians chapter chapter 4. Another prayer from the Apostle Paul. He says, Continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Just instructive to us that Paul writes in prison and he doesn't ask for them to pray for his release. He understands that it may be very well that the Lord's placed him there for a specific purpose. He doesn't know for sure if the Lord desires him to be released, but he does know one thing for sure. That wherever he is and whatever circumstances he's in, he wants to speak the word of God clearly and boldly in that circumstance. And so that's the prayer that he asked for. So I would say this, you know, as you consider the sovereignty of God, how should I pray for my family? How should I pray for my loved ones? What I would encourage you to do is instruct your mind, inform your mind more and more by the scripture. And when you do that, when you have a confidence that you know exactly what the Lord is for these people, it will, it will give you confidence and boldness in your prayer life. You will begin to pray with a newfound purpose. Because you will pray with confidence that your prayers will be answered. You're praying them according to God's will. If perhaps the Lord sees fit to keep your family safe, if He sees fit to deliver them from a trial, if He sees fit to even heal them of disease, those are most certainly times of thanksgiving. But I do believe that we should be very guarded very guarded from letting our prayers become overly concerned with such temporal matters, so much so that we miss opportunities like Daniel saw to partner together with what is clearly the, 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 the revealed will of God, partnering together with Him and asking Him to accomplish exactly what He says He wants to accomplish in the lives of believers, in the lives of His church, in the lives of your family. So I, I hope that's helpful. Um, I certainly don't claim to unravel all the mysteries of God's will and human will, but I think those are some helpful passages for me as I try to get my mind about around how I should be praying steadfastly for my family and for those who are among us uh, a congregation as we minister to one another. One other question that uh, someone asked me uh, was... Uh, In light of a sermon from a few weeks ago where we were outlining God's design for wives, one of the things that we noted was Titus chapter 2 where God has called women to be workers at home. It's a very clear command. He says that women, older women are to teach younger women to to love their husbands, he says in verse 4 and their children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. It's a very clear passage, so clear. Some people really struggle with it. 
this concept that God has actually ordained, not just for some first century rule, not just for some archaic society that women should have their primary sphere to be the home as opposed to a career. But, but people struggle with this concept. They struggle with the clarity of Scripture here. Well, I think the thing that we need to realize is that uh, this is a general principle. This is the direction, this is the focus where God wants to have women. The question that was posed to me is, in light of this, is it even, is it even possible for a woman to work outside the home? I guess the short answer is yes. Yes, if in fact she's able to, to manage these duties and to take care of these responsibilities, if then on top of all that, she's able to perhaps take some kind of employment, to take some kind of job where she makes a little money, makes some extra income for the home, there's certainly nothing that would forbid her from doing that. As a matter of fact, this is what you see in Proverbs 31. The noble woman does this, right? She goes out, she considers a piece of property and buys it in order to, to bring income into her home. She makes linens, it says, and she takes them to the marketplace and sells them. She does things uh, that bring a blessing to her family, a blessing to her home and bring extra income, no doubt, but all the while... You never get the impression that somehow she has reversed roles with her husband to be the primary breadwinner. As we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul calls husbands to nurture their wives, to care for them as they would their own bodies, that includes being the primary breadwinner for their homes, women being called primarily to be workers at home. It doesn't forbid, therefore, a man to do any kind of housework doesn't forbid him to come alongside of her and help her out as he has opportunity and it doesn't necessarily forbid a wife from going out and doing certain tasks outside the home that might bring income but these are general rules these are the direction of your life these are the things that ought to be your primary priority i often explain it in concentric circles that a wife has to view her priorities as, as, uh, as sort of moving out from the center, which is God. Her relationship with God ought to be her top priority. That ought to be where she in, uh, first and foremost invests her focus in spending time with Him, spending time in His Word and in prayer. And then outside of that would be the second priority the Lord's given to her, which is her husband and her children, making sure that she's taking care of her responsibilities to him and to them, meeting their needs within the home, providing them the kind of environment that the Lord would have her provide, being a worker at home in that sense. Outside of that, I think what you find is ministry should be a priority. This is exactly what you see once again in the worker, uh, the, 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 uh, the noble woman from Proverbs 31. What you see is that she is giving to the poor, she's serving the needy, she has a testimony of good deeds. By the way, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and Paul is talking about widows who are deserving of honor and even maybe some financial support from the church, he says you should examine their lives and one of the things that you ought to see 
is that they've washed the disciples' feet, that they've met the needs of the poor, that they've served others. So this, was, this ought to be a priority in the life of a woman, that she should be actively engaged in ministry in the body of Christ. And then finally, beyond that, I think if she is handling all those duties, if she's not falling behind in those, if she feels like she's faithfully providing the kind of home the Lord would, would uh, uh, call her to, the kind of home which satisfies her husband and her children and, and all of their needs, if she's faithfully taking care of her relationship with the Lord and also ministering in the church, and she has time to spare beyond that, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would forbid her going out and taking some kind of responsibility and some, some sort of job that might be able to provide some extra income for the home. As a matter of fact, in Western society, today's day and age, uh, we actually are blessed with many conveniences. Women aren't so tied down with the duties of grinding their wheat on a mill or beating out their clothes by the river or whatever it might be. And as women of a more convenient time in modern society, you have a great responsibility then to ask the Lord, how would I best use all of this extra time that women throughout all time and maybe even in other places of the world today aren't so privileged with? How can I best use this time for the sake of the Lord? What would most honor Him? And then employ your hands in that task. What I think you want to avoid is somehow feeling like that you need a career. That somehow your fulfillment is going to be found somewhere other than the home. That somehow that is a demeaning calling, a demeaning task, an unfulfilling endeavor. I think that's what you want to avoid is the concept that you have to embrace modern feminism and think that you're going to find your self-worth by some sort of salary, some sort of prestige, some sort of, some sort of uh, equality with men, or even with your husband. The scripture would give, you, would give you a completely different picture. You've got a high calling in the raising of your children, in the ministry to your husband, come along, coming alongside of him for exactly what you've been designed to do, which is to be his helper, helper suitable to him. The reason that the Lord created marriage. So anyway, that hopefully addresses that. If you have any further, need any further clarification, you can feel free to ask. With that, I'm going to open up the floor, see if anybody has uh, any questions, anything that we might be able to look into the scripture with. Yes, Jeff. It's, it's not really looking into the scripture, but it's related to the prayer issue, Shane. What would you say would be the most challenging aspect that you face through the week in preparing for bringing the Word of God on Sunday to these people? And how can we pray for you related to that challenge? Well, the greatest challenge is really just, you might say, diligence. Um, or not being distracted with all the unnecessary things. Because quite honestly, it's not easy 
to give your heart and attention in a dedicated way to the Word of God, at least for me. Um, for whatever reason, I can find a million other things that seem like they demand my attention. I really, as I've thought about it through the years, I think because it's somewhat of a painful process to have to look into the perfect law of liberty, as James says, because what you see is a lot of ugliness in your own heart, right? And, um, you know, you're always kind of bucking against that. And so I, I, there's a constant need for me to just block out the distractions. It's not as though they are demands on my life. I have a very uh, wonderful staff and great elders and people who really handle a lot of things so that I really have the time that's necessary. It really comes down to just my own heart. I always heard MacArthur say when uh, we were in seminary, the hardest part of sermon preparation is keeping your tail on the chair. And I didn't understand that until I got into ministry. And if a guy like that struggles with it, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised that it's a struggle for myself. So that's really the thing. It's just that, uh, that uh, all the vain idols of my own heart, all the distractions, all the things that... Uh, I so quickly give my heart and mind to that I would just continually see them for what they are, which is distractions, and just cherish the Word of God more and more. Let it do its work in my heart and not flee away from that. And I know as the Lord does His work in my heart, He will richly uh, prepare a message, I believe, for His people. So, thank you, brother. Pray for my heart. Pray that I'll be satisfied with nothing but Christ alone. That's what I want. That's what I want. Anybody else? Another question? Yes. Um, can a woman who is married and facing emotional abuse, no physical abuse, um, trust in First Peter chapter 2, to endure and stay there as yeah, First uh, Peter chapter 2, just to kind of set the context there, gets the example of Christ, right? Where he says that Christ himself suffered harsh treatment, unjust treatment. It says when he did this, he left us an example in verse 21, so that we might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. Deceit wasn't found in his mouth. In other words, he didn't try to manipulate the situation. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting him, himself to him who judges justly. So that's really the, the context here. And the question is, can a woman who finds herself in a, an environment where she's experiencing emotional abuse can she really trust in that passage or, or should she also employ other, other means? It's very poignant because in 
verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul links together the role of wives. He says, likewise, wives should be subject to their own husbands, even to those who do not disobey. Oh, excuse me, who do not obey the word of God or are disobedient to the word of God. So I guess uh, I could answer that in a twofold way. The short answer is most certainly a woman can bear up under that and ought to. She ought to continually be turning her heart to that. She ought to have her focus not so much on her circumstances, but on what the Lord is doing in her. That really is what the thrust of this passage is all about, is to allow the Lord to do His work in you in the midst of suffering. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say later on that it is shameful if you are suffering because you are bringing it upon yourself by being a busybody or being all sorts of other things. I don't remember exactly where the, uh, the reference is. I believe it's in chapter 4. But, 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 the, but there are sometimes people who bring suffering upon themselves because they are responding in the midst of a crisis in a fleshly way. And so the first thing to do is to, is to let, that, let that situation do its work in your heart so that you have opportunity to actually follow Christ. Christ didn't have a perfect life, right? He didn't, I mean, perfect world. He didn't have a perfect, uh, the perfect cir- circumstances. And he suffered in the midst of this without reviling in return when he was reviled. I think that's very clearly the intent of this passage. So many women, I think, sometimes in today's society are too quick to run after um, that kind of sympathy that's poured out for women in abusive situations. It's most certainly a reality. We don't deny that it is a reality. But I think that because of the sensitivity to it in modern society, they bypass what God intends to work in their heart through it. So you can trust it just as Christ trusted it. Your husband isn't the one who ultimately is in control of your life. It is God. And the point of the passage is that he is sufficiently able to take care of you in the midst of it. That message needs to be said loud and clear. On the other hand, there are certainly situations where women need to understand that submission to their husbands doesn't rule out the many other avenues of authority that the Lord's placed in their life. For example, Romans chapter 13 says, Every authority is established by God and is there for the praise of those who do good and the punishment of those who do evil. And it's urging us to recognize that even governing authorities have been established by God to accomplish certain purposes. Those governing authorities established over a woman and over her husband and everything. So in that case, if abuse were to ever cross the line into some sort of criminal activity, a woman is fully within biblical framework and within the will of God to employ His established authority, which is the government, in the examination or maybe even prosecution of criminal activity by the part of her husband. In fact, she might be doing the thing that is most loving for him. If she's exposing something that he's hidden for years, something that is destroying his own life and his own heart, it might be the very thing 
that he needs in order to see the reality of where he is. That's, in fact, exactly what God intends government to do. The praise of those who do good, the punishment of those who do evil. Or we might add to that the authority even of the church, which God has established over him. It might be appropriate at times, if he is sinning, that she follow the process of Matthew chapter 18. Confronting him if he's a believer in his sin, pointing out that his emotional abuse is inconsistent with the testimony of a believer. And then if he doesn't listen to her admonitions over a period of time, she has, I believe, biblical grounds and even a biblical mandate to call someone else to come alongside of her in confronting her husband and calling him to repentance, even to the point of even excommunicating him from the church. That's not, a, that's not an effort for her to destroy her relationship with her husband. It's actually an effort for her to rescue it. And she needs to see it that way. Some women have taken a view of 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, first, first Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 3 and the call to submission even to disobedient husbands to mean that they can never employ those kinds of means. And I think that's a misinterpretation. I think that you've got to read all Scripture in the context of itself. And the Bible certainly calls for us to, calls for us to exhort our brothers and sisters. The example of this is Ananias and Sapphira, right? She was led into sin. She was... She was led into sin by her husband. She certainly was culpable on her own part for engaging in that. But I think the expectation was that she would have confronted him, that she would have stood up against him, was that she shouldn't have simply followed him into his sinful behavior. She was held accountable for that and judged by God when, in fact, the right path for her would have been to confront her, her husband and expose it, you know, Expose the sin and even bring him before the church. So, I don't know if that's helpful. Hopefully it gives you some, uh, some guidelines at least maybe to help, uh, help uh, folks that you counsel. Other questions? Yes, Jeff. Shane, a question about using scripture... Ezekiel 36, 26 talks about God giving us a new heart and a new spirit within us. And I use that on many occasions when I'm challenging people about the law. But then you read the rest of that chapter and there's promises to Israel. Mm -hmm. So a broad question is, is, is that proof texting, is that pulling something out that it doesn't mean, how can in that passage and other passages come to make sure that we're handling the word correctly? Uh, good uh Good sensitivity because we don't want to proof text. A lot of people do that. They pull verses out of the Old Testament that very clearly apply to Israel and try to apply it to themselves. You know, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a hope and all this other stuff. And people wonder why, you know, what happened when they lose their job, right? Because they thought that God had great plans for them. Well, that verse never really has any reference to us in the New Testament. But the particular passage you're referring to, Ezekiel 36, is a new covenant. And we know that that applies to us because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's a minister of the new covenant. So, so we can take comfort in the fact that, uh, that you know, we enjoy some of the benefits and you read there in Ezekiel 36, just like you said, it, it, it describes conversion, it describes regeneration, which all of us experience. 
The struggle is as you move on through the passage, it talks about things like the restoration of Jerusalem and uh, the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers and, and all that. Things that really, if you read them literally or whatever, they don't seem to have a lot of application to us at all. I think the thing you have to realize in that particular passage, uh, as in the other covenants, you have to think about biblical covenants in, in, in layers of, of benefit. An example with the Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abraham he'll make a covenant with him. And as a part of that covenant, he will give him a great name. And he will give him a seed. And he will multiply his children as the sands of the sea. And, you know, uh, give him land. And then, and then through him all the nations will be blessed. Well, you go through all those benefits and you think, well, does all of that apply to me? Because if it does, it would seem like whoever is a believer but doesn't have a child is somehow missed out on one of the benefits, getting a seed, right? Or maybe if you only have one child or, you know, maybe even tragically if you lose a child in an accident, you know, how does all that fit? Well, you have to realize that when God makes these covenants, he has elements of it that apply sometimes to the individual, Abraham. He'll give him a great name. He'll give him a seed. He has elements of it that apply to Israel. He'll multiply them and he'll give them a land. And then he has elements of it that apply to the rest of us. Through him, all the nations will be blessed. Well, you come over to the Davidic covenant, you see the same sort of thing. You see some things that apply to David himself, that God will give him a seed who will sit on his throne. You see some things that apply to the nation of Israel. He'll give them rest from their enemies and he'll give them a land. And then you see things that apply to us, the blessings of the messianic reign. Well, when you come to the new covenant, it's no different. You have certain elements of it that were uh, uh, intended for Israel alone. And then you have elements of it that we participate in. So that we can say with, with, with no sense of doubt that we are participants in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, and in the new covenant. But it doesn't mean, just because we say that we're participants, doesn't mean that therefore every single promise in those covenants that we receive them wholesale. We are participants in it as a mystery, the New Testament says. God included us, even though it wasn't always crystal clear in the Old Testament, how the Gentiles would be involved with this. God includes us through the work of Christ. So in that passage, I don't think you're proof texting. You're pulling out those elements that are applicable to us in the New Testament. Regeneration, the, the, the changing of a heart of stone into the heart of flesh and giving us a spirit. You're just simply pulling out those elements that the New Testament would affirm are parts of, uh, parts of the promises that come to us. Any other questions? Maybe one more and then we can be done. All right. Well, we will close in a word of prayer. Thank you guys for coming tonight. Great time of worship. Again, this is our final Sunday evening service for the year. We'll be picking them up again in January. So be looking out on the webpage and an email as we give you the dates for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Let's stand together as we do that. Father, we're grateful again tonight for a time of worship, a time of communion. A time of joining our hearts together along with the Shaws in the work that you've called them to. Thank you so much 
for a rich and full night, even a chance to think again in some critical issues of your word. Lord, I pray that all the things uh, that we've participated in tonight would go with us. They would instruct us in the way that we would walk in thankfulness, that we would that we would be more faithful with your word and how we handle it, that we would be more faithful in prayer as we labor alongside the Shaw's, even our other missionaries in the gospel work that you've called them to. Lord, so much for us to think about and ponder from this evening. We just pray that your spirit would continue to impress it on our hearts and minds, and that we would be changed continually into the image of Christ and all that he's called us to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen.